Well, good evening. If you would turn in your Bible to Exodus 2, we'll be looking at the end of Exodus 2, the beginning of at the, in, in chapter 3. Um, Adam, thank you. Worship band, worship team, thank you for leading us in worship and preparing us for worship with the preaching of God's Word. As you know, Brother Al and I have been tag-teaming on a series on those Christological passages of the New Testament. It's been such a blessing to, to be under him again. But what we're going to be doing tonight outside that series, and this is going to take us all the way through November. I'm going to begin the Gospel of John during Advent season in December. I'm really excited about that because I've never preached John. And so it's going to be a real blessing for me uh, to be able to preach the Gospel of John. And I'm going to begin Genesis in January on Sunday nights. So we'll be looking at John in the mornings and the book of Genesis on Sunday nights. I generally preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, but because I'm in this interim period, what I've decided to do outside that series that I'm doing with Brother Al is to preach various Old Testament passages. Uh, passages that we, we love, passages that we're familiar with, and to show how all of these passages find their fulfillment in some way in Jesus Christ. You know, Apostle Paul said, Him we proclaim, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And in that day, before the New Testament was completed, what were they using when they preached? They were using the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament was Christian scriptures in the first century. They're Christian scriptures in the 21st century as well. And we're going to try to show that over these next weeks. And the first passage we're going to look at, and there's so many we could look at, and we can't look at, at them all, obviously, is we're going to look at Exodus 3. So if you would, uh, join me in prayer, and we'll ask the Lord to bless this time together, and this series for that matter. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace Indeed, we thank you that we can cry holy, 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 and the reality of your holiness does not consume us because we have a Savior, because we have a substitute who came as the Holy One and then took the judgment for us who are unholy and was raised from the grave, reversing the verdict on our sin. And now we cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray tonight you would, Lord, in this, these, um, the next moments together, and on this series for that matter, we pray that you would incline our hearts towards your testimony, that you would open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word. We pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And we pray that you would satisfy us this evening with your steadfast love and kindness that we know supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Well, this September 11th, about eight weeks from now, is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That is so shocking that it's been two decades. I was an intern at Lakeview uh, when 9-11 happened. Um, it was on a Tuesday. We had faith evangelism that night. But instead of having evangelism that night, we gathered. You remember that, Hal? Uh, we gathered as a church, and we just had a prayer service. 
And though it was a very painful and scary time for us all, a sad time for us all, it was such a beautiful thing to gather as the people of God on that evening when so many things were uncertain. But that day revealed, even produced, many heroes. And one of those heroes was a man named Rick Rescorla. He was the head of security for Morgan Stanley investment firm and their company was in the World uh, Trade Center. And he saved all 2,700 employees that day except for one who was so stubborn. There was one in that company who said, this tower will never fall, so he stayed in it. But he saved the others and he, he did that by leading them out of the building. Well, Rick Rescorla's story didn't begin that day. Uh, we have to go back to February 26th of 1993 when the terrorists first hit the World Trade Center. You know, they detonated those bombs in the garage of the, of the center, and they, they weren't successful. They, they killed a few, and they, they injured many, but they weren't successful. What they're trying to do was to get the North Tower to collapse into the, the Southern Tower, the South Tower. And that was fruitless. But Rescorla knew they were coming back. Uh, he, he said, we've, we've got the garage now secured, but the next time they come back, they're going to come through the air. He was telling everyone they're going to come through the air. They're going to fly planes into this tower. No one believed him. They thought he was insane. Well, one thing he did convince them to do was to implement an evacuation plan. He had tried to get them to move their headquarters across the Hudson, but because they didn't think anything of any terrorists flying into buildings, they wouldn't listen to that, but they listened to the evacuation plan. And so every three months, he would have all 2,700 employees descend down several stories down to the the bottom floor to get out of the building. It frustrated them to no end. They, they despised him for that. They thought he was over the top. But on the day of 9-11, his plan came to fruition and all 2,700 of those employees, except for the one, were saved. Well, Rescora lost his life because he went back into the building looking for victims in the building. As one of the survivors said, he did not on that day think of himself at all. He thought of all of us, and we are here because of him. Well, stories like that resonate with us, don't they? Because it's part of the constitution of the human heart that our hope be found in a rescuer. The one who was promised all the way back as early as Genesis 3.15. The mother promise of the Bible that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. In fact, that becomes the, the gospel mother promise of the Bible. The rest of the Bible really is just an unfolding of that plan. But all the, the, the mere human rescuers that we see in Scripture are simply shadows. They're foretaste. 
they're shadows because no mere human can offer the two things that are required of a Savior. What are those two things? I'm going to give you a couple of fancy terms here, and then I'm going to define them. Transcendence and eminence. Transcendence and eminence. The attribute of transcendence. What is the attribute of transcendence? It simply means this. The Lord God is above us. He's above. He is Lord God Almighty, as we sang. He is above us, and that invokes the biblical language of majesty. We sang about that this morning. Majesty, right? Holiness, sovereignty, and authority. So when we think about God's holiness, his sovereignty, his authority, the fact that he is above all, we're referring to the fact that God is transcendent. He is a distinct being who is infinite in his attributes. Everything else is finite. But not only is he transcendent, he is a God who is eminent. Now what does that mean? His eminence means he's among us. He's near. He's, he's present, especially with his people. He's involved in our affairs. How comforting is that for us? And today we see in perhaps what is the most important chapter in the Bible on the self-revelation of God why both attributes matter. His transcendence and his eminence. Now let's uh, get a little background here. In chapter 12 of Genesis, in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise. And essentially you could boil that promise down to two promises. He promises him a people and he promises him a place. But 400 years before the book of Exodus opens, that promise is under threat because of a famine. You know about that. And yet God arranged that Joseph, Jacob's son, would become prime minister of Egypt. Isn't that remarkable? It's a remarkable providence. And so I love that, that imagery, that typology there. You've got this one who's reigning at the right hand of the king, and he's mediating bread for Israel and for the nations. Without that mediation, the world dies of starvation. That points us to someone greater, doesn't it? And so he is in charge of this grain collection campaign. And so his 70-member family moves to Egypt, and 400 years later, as Exodus opens, the promise of the nation is being fulfilled. They are being fruitful and multiply. Even when the Pharaoh increases the labor, the slave labor, it just says they multiplied even more. And so, as time progresses, though, the Hebrews are resented and they are feared. That's the background of Exodus. And so oppressive measures are implemented by the Pharaoh. What does he do? Well, he institutes slave labor and then genocide. It's a horrific situation. And yet, because the Lord is above us and among us, by his providence, by his sweet providence, one baby boy is saved by the Pharaoh's 
own daughter. Such a beautiful story. And he will become Israel's liberator. He will become Israel's redeemer in a very real sense because the promise of a people was only half the promise. The other half of that promise was a place. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's court, again, a remarkable providence, learning the ways of the Egyptian people. And one day he's going to defeat that Pharaoh, rescuing God's people so that they can inherit the place that God had promised them. But he's not ready yet. He's not mature yet. And so he takes matters in his own hands, if you'll remember that, and it cost him 40 years on the backside of the desert. He essentially goes into exile for 40 years so that he can learn to be the kind of shepherd that God has called him to be. And that brings us to our text. And I want you to notice at the end of chapter 2, we see the people who are at this point under oppression from Pharaoh and the covenant God. Chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Now I want you to notice these verbs. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. I love that language. They came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered. Notice these verbs. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So what was it that made the difference for Israel? They groaned, and they cried, and God rescued. Why? Why were they crying? Because it brought God into the situation. And only a transcendent God can do anything about their plight, and only a God with the attribute of eminence will do anything about their plight. And God heard and God remembered, God saw, God knew. And so what we see here is the sovereignty, responsibility, tension. God is sovereign over all things. And yet we recognize in that mysterious relationship of divine sovereignty, we are responsible agents. So the question is, does God respond because of the covenant that he made with Abraham or because of their prayer? Well, the answer is yes. It's yes, right? And so remember, when Moses wrote Exodus, chapter 3 didn't exist. So chapter 3 is essentially the, the rest of the story. Uh, that there were no chapter divisions when, he, when the Old Testament was written. And so notice, and that brings us to the second part of this passage, Moses and the angel of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. And so this comes right off the hills where it says God saw and God knew. And now he's, about, he's answering the prayer 
before our very eyes. The priest of Midian, he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which most scholars believe is Mount Sinai. Isn't that remarkable? The place where God would give him the law later. Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And so here Moses is on Mount Horeb, and he is shepherding. God wanted a shepherd for his people, and so he is preparing one. He is training one. God always prepares his people for what he calls them to do. And so Moses is being faithful in the ordinariness of life. He's just a simple shepherd. He's just a faithful shepherd, and God intervenes. Notice in verse 2. And the angel of the Lord. Now we're going to talk about who this angel is in just a moment. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, notice the Lord there is the angel of the Lord in verse 2. I believe, along with most scholars here, that this is a theophany, and more particular, a Christophany. I believe that this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. God is preparing us with these Christophanies for the incarnation. The Son of God did not become the Son of God at Christmas. He's the eternal Son of God. He took on human flesh, right, when he was conceived. But he's always been eternally the Son of God. I believe that this is, as we saw this morning, the, the word angel can be messenger. But notice here, this is the Lord himself. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him. So not only is this angel called the Lord, he's called God here in this very passage. God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. This is the angel of the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Incidentally, Jesus used this very text to refer to the fact that resurrection is true because notice the tense of the verbs. It, it, he's not saying I was the God of your father. He's not saying I was the God of Abraham. He says I am the God of Abraham. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. When God forbade idolatry later, Moses would say, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, I believe he was reflecting back on this encounter he has with the living God here. 
Now, fire makes sense, doesn't it? Because we're drawn to fire and, and we're amazed by fire. It's beautiful. But we warn our children, don't play with fire. It's beautiful, but it's dangerous. The fire here represents God's holiness. It represents his holiness. Here's a flame that's nourished by its own life. It's not in need of external fuel. In other words, God is a living God, a self-sufficient being. And for you trivia buffs, for those of you that love Bible trivia, this is the first time in the Bible we see holiness associated with God. Right here in this passage. Now what does holiness mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be separate, separation. God is set apart from all creation. He's transcendent, to go back to our term. And that's why he says here, do not come near. It would have been a death knell for Moses to come near. But God is holy. Edward Lee, the, the Puritan, said this, and I love this about holiness. Holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes. So you could say his love is holy love. His goodness is holy goodness. His mercy is holy mercy. Everything about God is, is he's holy. Holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes without which his justice would be but cruelty. You see what he's saying? If God was just just and he wasn't holy, his justice would be but cruelty. His sovereignty would be pure tyranny. And his mercy would be foolish pity. But all of these attributes are bathed in God's holiness. But God's holiness is more than separateness. It's also transcendent. He is above. He is beyond us. He is supreme. He is absolute greatness. It's what we're seeing here in our passage. He is the God who is above us. Lord most high. Now sometimes this takes on the idea that God is so far removed from us that we can't speak of him. That we can't know him. But the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is knowable. Indeed, eternal life is found in knowing him. We know that from John 17, 3. And so biblically, this refers to his position as the king on his throne of the universe. And this is the starting place for Moses as the servant of God. And this is the case for all true service. It really is. Until we have been on our knees before the living God, because of his transcendence, because of his holiness, not only we will not desire to serve him, any motivations will be self-serving. Yet note verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. So clearly here, this is connecting back to the end of chapter 2. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Isn't that comforting to know? Our Lord knows our situation. The Lord knows our our state, 
He knows our afflictions. This is so comforting. This is the same God you worship. And he says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God is above us, but he's also among us. For some, God becomes so near that he can't be distinguished from the world. And so uh, we abandon that creator-creature distinction. But God's eminence is far from that. His eminence is his sovereign freedom to enter into our lives and reveal himself to us. And so Moses is going to respond with two questions. You might say they're the two most important questions you could ever ask in the world. The first question we're going to see in verse 11. In this passage, we see Moses and the Lord. Verse 11, notice his question. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, this is a question in verse 11 that is birthed by a, a crushing sense of creatureliness. Anyone who's been called to the gospel ministry or called to any ministry for that matter recognizes Moses' question here. I certainly have asked this question many a time. In other words, when we're aware of the presence of the holiness of God, we become aware of ourselves as creatures. When we meet the absolute one, we come to rec recognize that we're not absolute. When we meet the infinite one, we come to recognize we are very finite. And when we meet the eternal one, we come to meet, recognize how temporal we are. One scholar says, men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of, of God. Now keep in mind, the Egyptians were the most powerful people in the world in that day. How could an obscure shepherd do what God had called him to do? That's what he was. He was just a shepherd. No one knew who Moses was. But here's the beauty. Moses doesn't have to do the heavy lifting. Um, God is going to do the heavy lifting. Notice in verse 12, Moses asks, who am I? And, and God responds, now keep in mind, before we read verse 12, how would you respond to Moses? Who am I? I probably would have said to Moses, Moses, you are the man. Do you realize your, your special resume? How you, you spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court, 
being trained, and then you spent the last 40 years in the backside of the desert, the very place that God's people would be delivered into the land. You have remarkable leadership skills. You have an amazing education. But that's not what God does. That's not how God responds. Notice how he responds in verse 12. Moses says, who am I? God says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So who is Moses? All that matters, and this is an important word for us, for us all. Moses is the one in whom God is present with. That's all that matters. That's all that matters in this moment. This is more than omnipresence. Certainly God is omnipresent. But God is promising something more. This is the promise of his authority. This is the promise of his presence and his power coming to bear in the calling that he has entrusted to Moses. Now, God could have tried to prove that Moses was the right man by reminding him of his resume. But when God has promised his presence with someone, their giftings, their talents, their education, and their experience are of no advantage. In other words, the exodus did not depend on Moses' adequacy but in the covenantal presence of the God who is with us. Now, after asking God the first question, Moses asked the second question. This may be, I would say, it is the most important question anyone could ask. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what is his name what shall I say to them so in the ancient Near East names were let me give you another term connotative rather than denotative so when I named my children, there's nothing about their names that connote any character qualities in them. And so, we just named our children names we liked. Generally, our nicknames in our culture are connotative. If someone has a nickname, it connotes something about who they are. So, Bear Bryant. His nickname was Bear because he whipped a bear, right? And that tells you something about his his person. In the ancient Near East, for Moses to ask Mo, the Lord what his name was, he was asking, what kind of God are you? That, that's what he's asking. You've called me to do this. What kind of God are you? Notice in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so God gives his name both in the long form, I am who I am, and in the short form, 
I am. Now, this name is interpreted in various ways. The more recent consensus is that God is saying, I be who I be. There's intentional ambiguity here, in other words. We can't know this God comprehensively. It could be translated, I have always been who I've always been. In other words, I will act in a manner consistent with my track record. That could be the case, or I will be who I will be. God determines the future, and he'll be what matters ultimately in the future. But helpful in coming to terms with what God means, notice in verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Now this is so important. This, this, this is why this chapter is the most important chapter in the Old Testament on the self-revelation of God. Notice, this is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout generations. That name, Lord, we translate as Lord, is the name Yahweh. Yahweh sounds in Hebrew like a form of the verb, I am, Hayah. And so it's connected with the repeated, I am, in verse 14. So the impression here is that this Name Lord stands in the place of I am who I am. And he says, this is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. You hear somebody say, I I made him Lord of my life. No, you didn't make him anything. He is Lord. You don't get to determine who he is. He is Lord. And and, and that's why I believe that Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann was correct When he says the entire rest of Exodus, the entire Exodus narrative from here on is an exposition on the name Yahweh. Verse 14 and verse 15. You might even say it's an exposition. The rest of the Bible is an exposition on what it means that he's Lord. And because the Lord is above and exalted, he can come to the aid of his people. And because he is among us and he cares... He will. And that brings us to verse 16. We'll go through this quickly. Moses and Israel. Verse 16. It says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. I can't tell you how encouraging that is. Even as Al Jackson's successor, it, 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 this is extraordinarily encouraging. The reason they will listen to Moses is not because there's anything inherent in Moses. It's because of the promise. It's because of the promise of God's presence. Because he was sent by God. But then in the second part of verse 18 and verse 19, God predicts 
that Pharaoh will refuse. That brings us to the end of the passage, Moses in Egypt. It says in verse 18, And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Amen? In fact, you're going to see that language of mighty hand several times in the passage on the Exodus. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. And by the way, next Sunday night we're going to look at God's judgment on Israel's idols by way of the plagues. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. There'll be warfare. There'll be difficulty. But I will prevail in the end. That's what the Lord is saying. And this really is an overture, uh, a preview, a coming attraction for the next 11 chapters. And I want you to notice this as we close. We see in this last part of this passage, God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. In Genesis 15, God had said, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that is Israel, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. That's exactly what happens. God is also a God of great power. The plundering here demonstrated God's power. And typically, a, a defeated nation was plundered by mighty warriors. In this case, it will be by women. Third, we see the providence of God. This providence is seen in that all of these, this silver and this gold that would be plundered, would be used in the building of the tabernacle. God resources his people in what he calls them to do. And then finally, his provision. This was God's way. Get this, they had served as slaves for centuries, and now they were going to get paid for all the work they did. Of course, all of this is true. But the greatest expression of his promise-keeping power, his providence... And his provision was seen in the one in whom Moses points. Moses is a great leader, but he's just a shadow of the one who would come. The very embodiment of transcendence and eminence. Think about this. Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am. Where did he get that language from? He got this language from Exodus 3 because he was the angel of the Lord. When Moses asked him his name, he said, I am who I am. Jesus is the great I am of Exodus 3. In fact, in John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread, the true bread, by which you eat, you will never hunger again. 
In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door by which you enter the kingdom of God. In John 11, he is the resurrection and the life. John 10, he's the good shepherd. In John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. In this Christ, we experience the fullness of God who is above us and among us. And that's why Jesus was able to say, after he was raised from the grave, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. That's his transcendence. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all I have commanded you to do, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. His eminence. He is exalted as the resurrected Christ King above us, but he is eminent, and that is our hope. And only a Savior who is both transcendent and imminent can save. And maybe you're here tonight and you've never met that transcendent yet imminent Savior. But you can. If you will humble yourself and you recognize your sin and you confess that God is holy and right and just to, to judge your sin, but God had made a way through his provision, through his Savior to save you, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. And so as our Worship team comes forward. We want to give you an opportunity uh, to, to respond uh, to that plea. Uh, we sing tonight that God is transcendent. He's imminent. If he was just transcendent, that would be bad news. But he is imminent. And he is present to save. All you have to do is, is to flee to Christ and trust in him. So as we stand and sing, won't you come? We'll have pastors here at the end of the aisle.